Welcome to the podcast of the United Church of Bogota. We are a Bible-based church ministering to the English-speaking community in Bogota, Colombia. We invite you to join our diverse fellowship as we encounter God in worship and experience the impact of His grace on every part of our lives and in our world. To learn more, please visit our website at ucbogota.org. So one of two things apparently happened. Either the word did not get out that a lot of the roads were closed, or the word did get out that I'm preaching today. Um, Let's hope it's the former. Um, So today we're going to continue in our series on the book of Romans. And if you um, have been with us for any amount of time, you know that we have been walking through the book of Romans for a couple years now, not consecutively, but we've been doing a few chapters at a time. Today is our season finale. We're going to finish um, chapter 7 today of Romans, and then we're going to take a break and come back to it at another time. So today my job is to close this out um, for the time being. If you want, um, actually I encourage you to go ahead and turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 7. Um, Keep it open there. We're going to be jumping through the passage, but let's go ahead and read it together. Um, Well, I will read it, but you will stand um, as I read uh, for the reading of God's Word. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law was holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do I do not do, but what I hate I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work, although I want to do good, Evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. 
What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. This is the word of God. It is absolutely true and God has given it to us because he loves us. Uh, You may be seated and as you do I will pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us um, passages, even difficult ones such as this one, so that we might know you better, know ourselves better, and therefore depend more deeply on you. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would be alive and active this morning in our hearts, um, conforming us to the image of your Son. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, perhaps you're uh, familiar with the Uh, 1800s novel and uh, famous Broadway musical Les Miserables. It's incredibly famous, probably been used as a sermon illustration about 100,000 times, but so what? I'm using it anyway. Um, Main character of Les Miserables is a man named Jean Valjean, and when the story opens, he's in prison. Um, He's a prisoner because he stole a loaf of bread. Um, When he was poor and hungry, he stole a loaf of bread, And he was sent to prison, and he was only supposed to serve a five-year sentence. But he kept trying to escape, and every time he tried to escape and run away, his sentence would be extended longer and longer. Finally, he is released after 19 years in prison, and he goes out onto the streets, and he's looking for... Uh, somewhere he can stay, maybe somewhere he can find some work. Unfortunately, his passport, his documents now say former prisoner, so no one will let him stay in their ends. No one will allow him to do anything. Finally, this priest shows him kindness and welcomes him into his home. And what does Jean Valjean do? Well, what he has been doing for the last 19 years He steals the guy's silverware, and he runs away, doing it once again. And we think, how could this character not have learned his lesson yet? How can he not learn that he's going to get caught, he's going to be sent back to prison? Why does he keep doing these things over and over and over again? You'd think he would just learn his lesson. But if we're honest with ourselves, we could say the same thing about me, about ourselves, right? We continue in patterns of harmful behaviors even after we know they are harmful to us. There's a lot of harmful behaviors, a lot of different kinds of harmful behaviors that we enter into. Some are more uh, easily recognizable as harmful, right? If you have an addiction to a dangerous drug, for instance, or alcoholism, those are very clear habits. This is damaging to you. Your friends might come to you and meet with you and tell you that it's harmful to you. But I'm not just talking about those that are clear to everyone that are harmful, I'm talking about the patterns of sin, the patterns of unhealth in your own life that lead to consistent behaviors that harm you and other people. Think about your patterns of anger, the ways that you respond so defensively and quickly. How that leads to damage in your relationships because you jump on it so quickly and you know that it's bad, you know that it's harmful, and yet the next time you're triggered, you go off. 
or the patterns of, of covetousness, right? The patterns of longing for something you don't have and so focused on something you don't have that you are constantly discontent with what you do have and you know the pain of discontentment that that leads to and yet you still continue to covet. Or pride, you, you, you want so badly to think so highly of yourself and it, you know that it leads to damaged relationships because of your self-righteousness or your judgmentalism but yet you can't seem to stop helping to, to help it, to can't seem to stop. So my question is, this morning, if we have identified this pattern in our life, the behaviors, and we recognize that it is harmful, why do we keep doing it? I mean, I'll tell you, if I went down the street and I ate at a corientasso five times, and every single time I went there, the soup was cold, and even worse, I got food poisoning, I guarantee to you I would stop going to that Corientazo. You'd probably look at me and be like, why did you go back after the first time, right? We would learn our lesson. But something's different about the fight with sin in our lives. Something is different. The difference is that it seems that we're not fighting an enemy that is external, but one that is internal, that feels part of us. This is what Paul is talking about in verse 15. He says, I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. He continues in verse 23 saying, uh, there's two natures within him, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner to the law of sin at work within me. Hear the language he uses? He talks about this internal nature, these two natures within us, the part of us that knows what's right and knows something's harmful to us versus the part of us that wants to do it anyway. He recognizes that it's like a civil war, like a war raging within us. A war calling us to fight for one side or the other. And it's difficult. The side that wants, that knows something's wrong and therefore doesn't want to do it, we call, I'm going to call that the mind, because that's what Paul calls it here. And the other side, the side that wants to sin anyway, we're going to call that the flesh, because that's what Paul calls it. So from now on, that's what I'm referring to when I use those terms. Here's the deal. In this war, there is a major problem for the mind. There's a major problem. And the problem has to do with the fact that the flesh has way better weapons in this combat. Their weapons are way stronger. So I'm going to warn you in advance. Um, this week, I've been listening uh, to a podcast that, uh, called Hardcore History. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. On World War I, uh, it's very intriguing. It gives me a lot, of, uh, a lot of the personal details of what went on during that war, something I don't know much about. Um, so I tell you that because there's going to be like three illustrations from World War I this morning, so just, just be ready. Um, but here's what happened. The beginning of World War I, uh, all these countries are declaring war on each other, and Germany decides that they're going to attack France. Um, so they march through Belgium, and they get to the French line, and the battles begin. The Battle of the Frontiers. During one of these days of battle on August 22nd, 1914, uh, the French decide that they're going to charge the German lines. They're going to charge the German lines. 
in the, in the style that they've always done. The French at this point are a known battle commodity. They have, they have a lot of history in war. They're traditionally uh, really famous um, for war. Thinking about the last war they were in was with Napoleon and all that kind of stuff. And so they're pretty confident. The Germans are relatively new on the scene at this point. Um, and so the French underestimate them a little bit. A lot of it, because what they don't know is that the German weaponry has advanced exponentially in the previous years. The Germans have a piece of artillery known as the Big Bertha, a piece of artillery that shoots shells 17 inches long, something that destroys what the French have. And so when the French charge, the artillery fires, and the French are obliterated losing 27,000 people in one day, just destroyed because, not because of the difference in men, but because of a difference in weaponry. Sin has great weaponry to use against us, to use against our minds. Instead of Big Bertha, instead of this big artillery, they have a big gun called the law. And with weapons, it's not just about which weapons you have, it's about how you use them. And the, the sin knows how to use the law in destructive ways against us. Particularly, it knows how to use the law to deceive us and then to condemn us. Sin uses the law to deceive us. Um, here's the ironic thing. The law is actually meant to enlighten us. The law is meant to enlighten us to who God is. Maybe you remember last week, if you were here, Andrew Lupton preached on the law, and he talked about how the law reveals to us the character of our great God, what he cares about. So when he gives us these rules, he's showing he actually values life. He values people. He values relationships. And so he gives us these rules to protect us from harmful behaviors that would hurt us and hurt one another. It actually reveals that God loves his people so much. So what verse 10 is talking about when it says the very commandment was intended to bring life. The law was meant to bring us life, to give us the, a life that we are supposed to live that would bring fullness. But sin has grabbed the proverbial gun, the artillery of the law, and has turned it against us. And so they have used, they've taken what it's meant for and turned it on its head. So now what, is the, what does sin do? Sin, sin does exactly what the snake did in the garden. When the law would tell us this is something that is wrong for you to do because it is harmful, the snake in the garden said to Eve, what? Are you sure it's actually harmful? Maybe God is just withholding real happiness from you. Maybe God is trying to take away the good things from you. Maybe he's just a withholding God who doesn't actually care about you. So while the law is supposed to reveal to us God's care for us, sin takes the law and says, maybe this means that God does not care about you. And we experience this. If you've ever tried to battle an addiction or battle a sin pattern in your life and you get to the moment where you know that you're about to fail, you try to fight, right? And as you fight, everything in your body is basically screaming, no, if you do this, it will make you happy. It doesn't matter what you know, what you feel so deeply is this will be good for me. It's the lie 
that God does not know what's good for you. I know what's good for me, so I'm going to go do it. Your sin tries to convince you that this is actually the best thing. Instead of trusting and learning about the God who loves you and cares about you. It's a powerful attack. And we know this is a powerful attack by the law because of how often we fall to it, right? Sure, I think there's times when we, when we you know, don't give in to our, to our passions. But so often I can look back at my life and think of times in my week even and think back on times when I gave in to the desire to do something deep down I knew was harmful to me. But it doesn't stop at deception, it doesn't start stop at deceiving. The law, after deceiving us into sinning, then follows up by condemning us to death. Verse 11 says, For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me first, and through the commandment, put me to death. Condemned me to death. First sin thinks, commits us into thinking that bad things are good for us, And then as soon as we do those things, sin turns around and says, look how awful you are. Sin's a mean, mean person, a mean thing. Because it it, first it convinces us to do the wrong thing, and then it shames us and condemns us for doing it. Verse 12 says, so then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. What sin does, it says, hey, look at the law now. Look at this law. I'm going to use the law against you. This is what God is like. He is really good and righteous. And look how far you have fallen from this law. Look how you have failed this law. And it pushes you down. And it says, you are a failure. And do you know why this weapon has power? Because it's right. Sin is not lying to you anymore. It's telling you the terrible truth. That you have failed God's law. But sin doesn't stop there. Sin then tries to use your failure to drive you towards further sin. We call this uh, shame. It uses the power of shame to drive you not towards the Lord, but away from the Lord. There's a, there's a book by C.S. Lewis called The Great Divorce. You may have read it. Um, it's an allegory about um, heaven and hell. And in the book, um, this bus ride full of people from hell or purgatory, whatever it is in the, in the book, come up to heaven to visit, to see what it's like. And the people from heaven come out to try to encourage the people to repent and to come in, right? But there's this one character, um, she's not given a name, but she is super aware of how unworthy she is to get into heaven, She looks at herself, and while the other people from heaven are solid and opaque, she is clear and see-through and easy to see how broken she is. And so one of the people from heaven comes up to her and says, Come, it'll get better. It'll get better. You've got to come into God's arms. Sin in her says, No, I need to run away, because if I go towards that, I will be exposed. And she keeps running away and running away and running away. This is what our sin does to us in a shame cycle, right? You fail at that pattern you've been trying to fight against, and you are led to feel so much shame that you run away and you hide and you try to escape the sin, but in your process of escaping, 
what ends up happening. You start doing it again, and maybe even more frequently because it's like the only thing that feels like a release in the moment, but then you feel more shameful afterward and afterward. A shame cycle drives us towards more sin, and sin wields this weapon with power. So as we're fighting against sin and its, its major weapon of the law, as it deceives us, as it condemns us, um, we go to battle and we find out even worse news, right? The French went into their battle against the Germans there very confident because of their, their military history and prowess. And they went wearing uniforms and carrying weapons of an earlier age, outdated weapons, thinking that these were still the modern ways of the time. Their uniforms were still bright red pants and bright blue jackets, made them easy targets, things that would have been an advantage in the past now were a disadvantage. Our weapons, like the French's weapons, are found out to be useless against the power of sin. We are powerless on our own to fight against sin. This is what it's talking about in the second half of this passage. It says, We know the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do I do not do, but what I hate I do. Continuing in 17, As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature, For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Our weapons are defenseless. Our weapons are doing no damage, no ultimate damage against sin. This passage is one of the most uh, debated passages in in Scripture. Um, A lot of people on both sides, um, people who agree in most every other way, come down on both sides of what this passage is about. Um, or rather, who this passage is about. For when Paul is saying, I do what I don't want to do, and I don't do what I want to do, some people think Paul is putting himself in the shoes of someone before Christ, someone who is not a believer, someone who has no power over sin because the gospel has not produced fruit in their lives, okay? And that their own sinfulness cannot fight against, or their own brokenness cannot fight against the power of the flesh, on the other side, people, other theologians believe this is um, about the Christian and the ways that even after, um, after conversion, we still struggle with sin. We still continue to struggle with sin. No matter where theologians come down on this debate, um, one, thing, one thing is clear. The main point still remains. And that is, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, if you try to fight sin on your own, you will fail. Sin cannot be defeated by our willpower. It cannot. You will continue to do the things that you don't want to do. Now, that doesn't mean we don't try to fight, right? There's all kinds of tools, all kinds of weapons we use in this battle, right? If you're trying to overcome a pattern, perhaps you've created all sorts of rules or self-discipline. Like, I'm not going to, I'm going to create all these extra rules for myself to make sure that I don't potentially fall off the cliff. If the cliff's over there, I'm going to build a fence 
20 miles from the cliff to make sure I don't fall off of it. All right, we do that. Maybe we do, we come up with accountability groups. We come up with ways that we're going to get other people to, to, to fight with us and, and uh, keep us from, from sinning. We come up with, uh, with knowledge. If we just have enough knowledge about the issue, if we understand ourselves, if we dive deep into our own hearts and understand our story and how we ended up this way, then that will change us. And I will tell you that all of these things are good things. And some of these things have helped some of you in this room to overcome an addiction or a a certain sin pattern. Um, But here's the problem. None of them eradicate sin. Even if in your life today you can look back on a time 15 years ago when you first got sober, for instance, and you can look, I I have been clean ever since. I guarantee you in those last 15 years up till this present, there are still sin patterns popping up in your life still harmful behaviors that you are participating in, even if they aren't that same addiction. Sin continues to pop up in our lives over and over and over again. And by our own willpower, by our own practices, by themselves, we cannot fight sin and win. Sin does have one weakness, one major weakness, and maybe you missed it in this passage. And that's in verse 13. It says that that which is good then become death to me. Talking about the law. By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death. So that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. The fact that sin reveals itself to be utterly sinful is actually a weakness. Let me explain how with another World War I illustration. So as the Germans are marching through Belgium, um, this is a big deal because in the eyes of the world, um, as this war is starting, people aren't sure which side is at fault for the war, which side is the good guys, which side is the bad guys. So unless you're like the French or the Germans or the Austria-Hungarians or the Russians, you're kind of uninvolved from this war. However, There are some nations sitting by, watching, trying to figure out whether they should get involved or not, including the British. And as the British uh, watch the Germans, they begin to wonder if maybe they need to fight against them. Here's why. Because as the Germans march through Belgium, Belgium is a neutral country. So first off, that's not good. They're not supposed to be going through a neutral country that they're not even at war with, that they don't have conflict with. And not only that... The Germans, at least so the propaganda says, and we believe historically to be true, the Germans were were actually executing civilians as they went through. And all of a sudden, Germany in this war seems to be the aggressor, seems to be the bad guys, which led led to other nations like the British getting involved. What does that have to do with anything? When sin reveals itself to be sinful, when sin reveals itself to be bad and miserable and hurtful to you, that's a good thing. It's actually a grace of God that he allows sin not to satisfy you, but to leave you in misery. Why? Because when sin drives you towards misery, it forces you to recognize, I can't fight this on my own. I need outside help. And so it forces you, like Paul, to cry out, who will deliver me from this body of death? 
And the answer is right here. Jesus Christ delivers us. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. God comes and he delivers us when we call out for help. Here's a little bit of a spoiler alert for next season on Romans. Um, We're going to jump ahead a little bit to Romans 8. Um, I'm going to read Romans 8 verses 1 through 4 because this closes out with hope, the hardship talked about in Romans 7. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. I hear what it's saying. While the law condemns, the law says, the sin condemns to the law. God says, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Christ met the law standard for us. And he applies his righteousness to us. And not only that, he takes death to the grave with him. When Christ dies on the cross, a perfect man, he takes the sin of the world onto himself and he goes to the tomb. And when he comes out, sin doesn't come with him. It's like that scene in Lord of the Rings uh, when Gandalf is fighting the, the Balrog in the tombs of Moria. Balrog is this giant, fiery creature signifying the most evil things from the depths. Um, and Gandalf is protecting his friends by standing on this narrow bridge, holding off the Balrog from advancing and hurting his friends. And what happens? Gandalf and the Balrog go plummeting into the depths together battling, and Gandalf destroys the Balrog, and he returns. The Balrog does not. It's what God does with our sin. He takes it to the grave, and he defeats it once and for all. Now, this is probably best seen as the decisive battle, right? The battle's over. The the war is going to be over at this point. Sin has clearly lost. It has been destroyed. Death has been destroyed by Christ. The knockout blow has been done. But we're still on the fight. The war is not completely finished yet. Um, The war has been determined. We're still in the middle of it as long as we're on this side of eternity. We need help in the midst of this war. And God gives us not just forgiveness for our sins, but he gives us a Holy Spirit to help us as we battle against sin. Um... You perhaps know the rest of the story of Les Miserables, um, at least the rest of this part of the story. Jean Valjean, he steals the priest's silverware after the priest's kindness. And as always, he is immediately caught by the police. And the police are excited to shame this petty prisoner in front of the priest by bringing him to him and forcing him to tell the priest what he did, condemning him. And as they pull Jean Valjean to the door of the priest's home, the priest answers, and the, and the soldiers say, this man has stolen your silverware. 
And how does the priest respond? He says, no. That silverware was a gift. And you know what? Not only that, you forgot the candlesticks. Please take these as well. He not only forgives Jean Valjean for the sin he committed, he gives him a gift that he says, go use this to change your life. And Jean Valjean is so motivated by this act of kindness, and he uses the, the candlesticks to create a new identity for himself, one that is, has completely changed from the old identity. This is what Christ does for us. When Christ dies for us, when Christ takes our sin from us, he forgives us, and then he gives us his Holy Spirit and says, here, may this work to change you, to make you more like me. The Spirit is living an active reminder in our hearts of who we are, of whose we are. So when the law attacks us, when sin attacks us using the law, rather, we have, we have defense. We have a defense now. Because when the sin comes to us condemning us and saying, you do not live up to the law, we can say, you are right, but the Spirit working inside of me confirms and applies the truth to me that Christ has paid that penalty for me. Therefore, I am no longer responsible for it. I am no longer accountable for it because my sin has been paid. Sin loses the power to condemn us. Second, sin loses the power to deceive us. Because when, when, when the sin comes to us saying, you can't really trust the Lord, you can't really trust the Lord, the Spirit is actively at work in us, pleading with us, reminding us that we are in fact children of God. The sin, sorry, the Spirit works in our hearts so that we can call out Abba, Father, is what Galatians tells us. Meaning that we who have the Spirit in us are being Uh, renew being reminded of God's good and gracious character so when sin says God is not good we can be like no I know he is good because I've seen what he has done for me and I know because his spirit is working in me reminding me of those truths sin loses its power doesn't mean we don't still fight where are we left we're left still in this battle still in this war the final Day is coming when one day sin will be completely removed from us, but it is not here yet. And so in the meantime, in the now, in the not yet, we anticipate God's return. Meanwhile, pressing in, depending on the Holy Spirit to fight for us. It means that we are constantly and regularly repenting quickly. We don't get bogged down in a shame cycle. When we sin, we go to our community, and more importantly, we go to the Lord in repentance, and we remind ourselves, we get reminded by the Spirit of his love for us and of his forgiveness, which gives us power to fight the next time. We press into the Spirit. We depend more deeply on him. Because here's the deal, guys. This is what I need to remember too. Sin is not, fighting, the battle against sin is not a game of pulling up your bootstraps and charging in with all of your power. You don't have it. It's a game of dependence. It's a lifestyle of dependence on the one who goes to battle on your behalf and who has accomplished the victory for you.
Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word um, that it never returns void. Uh, I pray, Lord, that um, your word would be an encouragement to us this morning and a challenge to us. May it be um, power for us as we fight sin this morning, as we fight sin in our lives, as we battle against it, that we might know you deeply. Pray, Lord, for those of us here who don't yet know you, that um, we would see the damage of our sin and see the life that you bring. Um, pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to support the ministry of UCB, please visit our website at ucbogota.org.